We're not done unpacking the riches of the gospel. There's much to be said. Uh, there's much to be submitted to. There's much to be transformed by. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us and uh, take another sip of coffee and we'll shift gears and get going. God, you have promised to build your church. You have promised to call people to yourself, to transform people by your grace, and to reflect your glory through their lives changed, through their lives transformed, through their lives redeemed. You have promised to build your church, and you said that when you build your church, the gates of hell cannot prevail. The gates of hell cannot overcome it. So God, we ask that everything that we do, all that we say, all that we put our hands to, everything we commit ourselves to would be about joining your mission to build your church of which nobody can prevail against. But we want to do what we do by your strength, driven by your grace, not by our own wisdom, not by our own insight, not by our own effort. And so we pray to be a church who is laboring with you, driven by you, transformed by you to extend your kingdom here on earth, to make your name known, and Lord, as we do that, we, we remember that when you're in that and you're doing that and we're relying upon you, nothing can overcome it. And we pray for our brother Rashid in Pakistan who's given himself to your glory and your kingdom and your church. And we pray for him and all of the pastors that he has trained and the churches that they're planting and the people that are being transformed. And we say that you are building your church in Pakistan and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. While what looks like darkness only lasts for a time, Lord, transformation is coming. One day, all of it will be wiped away, and all of it will be made new, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And I thank you for the men in, in places like Pakistan and the families in places like Pakistan and India and all across the world who, who are giving themselves to see your church established, to be a part of what you're doing to make your church known. And I pray for the things that we're a part of even here in Richmond, Lord, in the school here at Holton as they get ready for a new school year, Lord, for Dr. Hudson, the principal. Lord, I pray for great wisdom for him, what an unbelievably difficult job he has. I pray for wisdom and patience for him. I pray that your spirit overwhelm him and overwhelm the school and overwhelm this place, that there's a different air that people breathe and feel as they walk into this place. Lord, I thank you for their willingness to allow us to come and be a part of what they're doing here. I pray that we never take that for granted, but we always see this school and the people of this school and the families who come to this school as part of our family who we love and serve and care for. And I thank you for, for men like Franklin Bozer who comes week in and week out to make this a reality for us, who, who takes of his time to come to open up the school, to make the facilities and the resources of the school available to us on Sunday. I pray that you be with him today, you be with him tomorrow, you be with him throughout his days. I bring peace upon his life and peace upon his heart and peace upon his family. So Lord, I thank you for these blessings, I thank you for these opportunities, and I thank you for your promise to be our God and that we can be your people and that you're building your church and nothing can come against it. Lord, it's to that promise and to that end that we submit ourselves. And we say thank you for the privilege of being a part. Thank you for calling us to be a part of what you're doing. And now have your way with us this morning. In the few minutes that we have, 
Help us to submit our hearts and our souls and our minds to you, to your word, to be changed by your word, empowered by your spirit, and transformed into your likeness for your glory. And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who made all of that possible. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles and you're open to Romans chapter 3, I gave you enough time there to do it. Put the little ribbon, if you've got one in your Bible, or your bulletin, or your pen, or your whatever you bring in your purse, and put it right there in that section of your Bible, and then turn a few pages over to Romans chapter 10. We're going to actually start in Romans chapter 10, and then we're going to go back to Romans chapter 3. I should have done that myself. Romans chapter 10. Let's start there. We'll go back to Romans chapter 3, and you'll get the picture of why here in a second. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, he's talking to the church in Rome, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's talking about the Hebrew people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, those who have been called to God historically, given the law, become God's people through God's covenant with them. He's He's talking about the people of Israel. My prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Interesting, Paul. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So there's this reality that there are people who are extremely religious, who who know God, who have a zeal for God, who have a passion to know God and to be reconciled to God, to relate to God, to be his people and for him to be their God. There are very religious people who are very zealous and and passionate about who God is, but Paul has to pray for them because they're not saved. There's something that they've missed. Somewhere along the line, they've got this passion to be God's people and for him to be their God, but something's gone awry. Something's not there. And I love this. I love this because this is one of the most accurate pictures of my heart before Jesus came in and rescued me from my sin. And I think it's one of the most accurate pictures of the church in America today that I think we'll find in the entire scripture. You see, I I have no doubt that in this building and in churches all across this country, there are plenty of people who come here week in and week out who are passionate to know God, who really want to know God. There is a zeal to be related to God, to be intimate with God, to be honest with God, to be changed by God, to know God. But when they walk out of the doors, there is no joy, there is no passion, there is no worship. No doubt zealous for God. No doubt longing to know Him, but living without the joy of actually being changed by him. Living day in and day out in their life without the joy that comes from God. The joy that is to characterize people who are being transformed by the gospel and driven by the grace of God in Christ. Desperate to know him, but exhausted. Exhausted from trying to find him. Exhausted from trying to find him. I think the church at large in this country can be characterized by people who are zealous to know him, but exhausted from trying to find him. And instead of joy, unspeakable joy, that people around the world and in the city that we live in and in the places that we work have to look at and say, where in the world does that kind of joy come from? Where does that kind of contentment 
come from? Where does that kind of passion come from? Look and see at people who are zealous to, to know God but have no joy in their life. Or, if that's not the case, we, we find a people, we get many people in here, throughout the churches in this country and in this culture, who find themselves in a passion to find God and to seek God and to know God, but so unable in themselves to do that, they find themselves caught up in deep and dark, very secret sins. And their lives are, are caught up in this cycle of a sin that they fear exposure to because if they were to be exposed, if people were to really know that I'm caught in a massive compulsion to drink, I'm caught and I'm bound in a massive compulsion to look at what I should not look at on the computer. I'm caught in this massive, massive addiction to, to sex. What would they think? What would people think? So people can't know. People can't know that I have a hard time, so this sin becomes darker and more shameful and more secret in our hearts and in our souls, and we come into the church desperate to know who God is, but we can't seem to find him, and we're exhausted at trying to figure out who he is and how we can get to know him, but we're, we're caught up in this sin that keeps us in this closet and in this darkness, afraid to be real with other people or real with God about who we are, and so we come and we, we become fake, plastic people, singing very fake and plastic songs, giving very fake and plastic greetings with one another, learning all kinds of very religious and helpful words to avoid actually having to deal with what's going on in our souls with one another. And we walk out into the place where we live, exporting to the watching world a a religion that you can pursue with all the zeal but never actually experience any of the joy and any of the change and any of the freedom any of the things that we have talked about so far in the last few weeks. And so I love Romans 10. Because just as accurate as it was of the people of Israel in the time that Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome, it's as accurate of us as it was of them then. We are a people who are zealous for God. No doubt passionate to know him. No doubt wanting to pursue him and find him, but exhausted at the effort, exhausted at trying to do what we think we have to do to get to him, and stuck in very dark and secret patterns of sin, feeling no way off the hamster wheel, fearing exposure, fearing knowledge, and ultimately fearing transformation. And when that becomes characteristic of a church, when that becomes characteristic of a people who are to reflect the grace and the wisdom and the manifold greatness of God to a watching world. Worship, worship ceases to exist. Because how can you worship what you don't recognize your need for? How can you worship what you can't seem to grasp? The church becomes impotent, really. Stunted. A failed version of what it was supposed to be. So Paul says, I pray. I pray that they would be saved. The people of God with zeal for God, a passion to know God, chasing him with all that they are, exhausted and not finding him, I pray, I pray they get saved. That's my prayer for this church. That's my prayer for the church in this country. That's my prayer for God's church in 
this city is that many of us would get saved. That many of us would get saved. What's the problem? Verse 3. Why is this the case? Paul's going to lay it out for us. He says, For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, the church did not submit to God's righteousness. Being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Why are we exhausted? Why do we have no joy? Why is there no passion? Why can we find ourselves caught up in the busyness of activity? Find ourselves committed to a church, but finding no joy in Jesus? Finding no real passion to transform who we are? No real zeal for who God is for us? Paul says it's because we've sought a righteousness that's our own. Righteousness. What is that? We're going to talk about a couple key words this morning. Righteousness is the first one. Very simply, righteousness is simply right standing with a person or an organization. To be right with someone, having no offenses, liabilities, or claims against you. That's what it means to be righteous. You're all familiar with it in life. I mean, think about it. Be honest. You don't have to tell me how this works out for you, and I'm not going to pick on any one particular person or group of people in here. But all of you do what you do. Wear what you wear. Listen to what you listen to. Go where you go. Think what you think in some effort to be accepted by someone or some group of people. And don't tell me you don't. At some level, you do what you do. Wear what you wear. Grow beards the way you do, cut your hair the way you do, ride the bikes or the cars or whatever it is that you do in some way to be a part of or accepted by a person or a group of people on some level. You're all familiar with this. When we talk about righteousness, we're talking about acceptance. We're talking about status. We're talking about having a right standing with someone or with a group of people. And when the Bible talks about a righteousness in relation to God, it's talking about having a right standing before God, a right standing in acceptance, finding no offense or liability or claim against you in the presence of God. So Paul says there's this thing that intrinsically we know we need. We know we need to be able to stand before God without any offense or liability or claim against us. And the problem is we have all this passion to pursue this, but instead of understanding what God has done for us in Christ, we pursue a righteousness of our own. And where we find ourselves exhausted and without joy and without passion and stuck in a sin that we can't seem to walk our way out of or look to God to rescue us from, it's because we have begun to seek for ourselves a righteousness of our own or a standing before God with no claims or liabilities in his presence on our own or on our own efforts. First three chapters of Romans, we talked about a few weeks ago, laid all of this out and said, no one, no one stands before God righteous. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And we won't go back and read the first three chapters of Romans like we did a few weeks ago. For those of you who are new, we actually did that. It was fun. But the first three chapters of Romans, if you were sitting in that church when they read that letter, you would have gasped as you listened to what Paul was saying. 
For three chapters, Paul unpacks our junk in relation to God. For three chapters, Paul unpacks our need for someone else, God himself, to come in and rescue us from ourselves, that we have made an absolute mess of our lives and of this world. And more particularly, on the other side of Romans 3 and Romans 5, verse 12, I think I've got it up here. I think we get specific. This is what Paul says, I think. Yeah, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So not only are we seeking some kind of righteousness before God because we desperately know that we need a right standing before God intrinsically in our hearts and in our souls, we have to do that because from the very beginning we are born into sin and we are born unrighteous before God. Because of Adam's sin in the beginning, all of us, from the moment we are born, stand before God unrighteous and intrinsically know that we need a right standing not only before other people, not only acceptance in the eyes of other people, which we pursue in any form, many forms and fashions, but we, we know intrinsically that we need a, a right standing before God himself. We're born in sin. And see, that changes the game altogether. And we've talked about it every single week because I think we fail to remember this so often. We are born because of Adam in sin. Sin is a nature, it's not an action. Sin at root is a nature and not an action. The things that we do that we call sin, the actions that we do that we look at and point at, they're simply the fruit of a very deeper problem. They're simply actions that are according to a nature that we were born into. And this is so important for us to get. This is so important for us to get. If we fail to get this, we'll be tempted to continue this process that we find ourselves in uh, of figuring out what things we think are wrong or what things we think we shouldn't do or what things we measure other people by and putting them into this big lump and think, if I don't do these, then I'm okay. These things are bad. These things are sins. I don't do those. I do this, and therefore, I'm really not in sin. When 1 John says, if you say you're not in sin, you call God a liar. So you're guilty of pride in and of yourself in that. But the reality of it is sin isn't those simple things. It's a nature. It's so important that you get this. It's so important that you teach your kids this. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. If we could just teach our kids that all these different things that they do, those things simply aren't sin that they have to figure out a way to get rid of, but that they are born in sin and needing someone to rescue them from that, and that these things that come out of them are simply symptoms or fruit of a much deeper problem that they need rescue from. If we would stop raising generations of little Pharisees, but people who actually have a a passion and a desire for God who rescues them and redeems them, like we talked about last week, oh my goodness, what would happen if we actually got that? What would happen if as adults we actually got that? But here's the problem, we are in sin We are stuck in sin. We are born into sin. And because of sin, we stand unrighteous before God. We do not have a right standing before God. And so we need a right standing before God. We don't like to not have a right standing before God. We don't want to not have a right standing before God or anybody else. Just like you don't want to be seen as separated from the people that you want approval from. You don't don't want to be unrighteous in the eyes of the people that you want to be accepted by. How much more in our souls do we want to stand before God one day and be accepted and be righteous in his presence and in his sight and intrinsically all of us want that. So Paul says here's what happens. We go after one of our own. 
We go after a righteousness of our own. Do you know what that's called? Not your question. It's not a big theological word. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. And self-righteousness produces this exhaustion and this lack of joy and this lack of passion and this lack of transformation while all the while having a zeal to know God, to know Him. We seek to earn a righteousness before God that comes from our own work all the while fail to actually experience what he's done for us. And there's two big ways we do this. You know the two big ways that we seek to make ourselves righteous before God? We have two favorite paths of self-righteousness. One is, one is morality. We love morality. We love being good people. Even if you sit in here and do not believe that the God of the Bible is who he says he is, you will go to great lengths to prove to me just how if he really was real, you would be okay in front of him. It doesn't matter. All of us have this intrinsic desire to prove that we are right before God. And one of the ways that we love to do it is morality. We love to see God, like we talked about a few weeks ago, very similar to Santa Claus. He likes to keep a list and make a list of who's being good and who's being bad. And so we figure out what things make us good and what things make us bad, and we figure out how to keep ourselves from doing the things that, we, that make us bad and trying to do the things that we think are good so that we can look to God and say, look at all the good things that I've done now, except me. Love me. Bless me. I'm, I'm righteous before you. Look, I've been a good person. And however you break that list up, however you break that scale up, I mean, for some of you, it's, it's causes. For some of you, you are so passionate about a particular cause that you begin to think that the, that the anti-behavior of that cause is the ultimate act of unrighteousness. So if you just don't do what these people do, if you're just not guilty of believing what these people believe, if you're just not guilty of, of, of enabling these people to do what they want to do, then you're a good person. Morality is one of our favorite, favorite paths towards self-righteousness. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you're actually successful, let's just say you are. Let's just say you have a way of being successful on your moral ladder and on your moral scale. In the end, well, how do you end up? you end up arrogant. If you're actually successful at being a good person as you've defined it and keeping all the rules and all the laws that you think you need to keep to be righteous before God or righteous before other people, in the end you wind up arrogant because you were able to do what they were not able to do. And your sin is pride, which is the worst of all sins, which got Lucifer cast out of heaven. So you're not really good, you're arrogant. You're full of pride. And if you fail, which you ultimately will, because none of you can even keep the laws that you set up for yourself, and you'll constantly erase them, write them down in pencil, erase it, change it, erase it, change it, because you can't keep the laws that you actually write for yourself. And when you do, what do you, how do you wind up? Depressed, frustrated, exhausted from trying to keep all of these things that make you good. So we, we take this morality and, and we chase after our righteousness before God by trying to be good people. And in the end, we're either arrogant or depressed and exhausted and frustrated. In either case, there's no joy. There's no delight. 
There's no satisfaction in who God is for us in Jesus. It's satisfaction in who we are outside of God and what we were able to do, or it's absolute despair because we're not able to do what we think we have to do to be who we want to be before God. Oh, if that's not the church right now, I don't know what is. Zealous to be good, exhausted, exhausted from trying. No joy and no passion. And so if we don't take the moral route, we end up taking the religious route. So instead of trying to figure out what all the good things are we have to do to be right, recycling, cutting coupons, you know, loving your dogs and giving to the SBCA or whatever those things are that make you good and other people bad, if you don't go that route, you go the religious route. You try to figure out what are all the things the church tells me I need to do. I mean, what are all the customs and traditions of the church that we've exalted to some form of, of law before God that if I come into this group and I wear the clothes they wear and sing the songs that they sing and go to the services that they do and do all the things they say I need to do and I get up early enough and I read my devotion and I, I read my Bible and I listen to worship music on the way to church and I don't cuss in public and I don't yell at my wife in public and I don't drink in public and I don't dance in public and I don't do all these things in public that I do at home but I don't do them in public, then, then I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. The same thing happens. You either wind up arrogant all the way over here because you have done all that you need to do to stand right before God that all these other people aren't able to do and you were able to get it all straight. You were able to get yourself straight. You were able to do everything right. Why can't they? And you're full of pride and you're full of arrogance holding over people the very thing that you set up for yourself to do that you probably just naturally did very well or exhausted exhausted because you can't do it you want to do it you want to do it i know you do you, you would not be here if you didn't want to do it even those of you who are here who don't know why you're here you want to do it i have no doubt no doubt that we are full to some level of desire of wanting to know god wanting to be right before god wanting desperate to experience the joy and the passion that comes from God. But we have pursued a righteousness that comes from ourselves, a self-righteousness through trying to be good people or trying to be very religious people. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We wind up arrogant and mean or exhausted with no joy, no joy, no, no passion. So what do we do? What do we do? If we stand before God because of sin, unrighteous, and so we can't come into his presence because of our sin and our unrighteousness, and we desperately want to stand in his presence, and we want to be accepted by God, and deep down in the deepest part of our hearts, whether we're wrestling with who he is or not, we, we want to be able to stand before him. We want him to accept us. We want to know him. We want to taste the passion and the freedom, and the joy we want to worship, we really do. How, how do we do it? Is there a way for that to happen? Paul says yes. Instead of seeking a righteousness that comes from yourself, there is, there is a righteousness that comes from God. There is an acceptance, a right standing, a pardon that comes from from God. Flip back if you've got your stuff in Romans 3, back to Romans 3. Let's talk about this. 
We're going to finish the passage we started a few weeks ago. We're going to come back to it, and we're going to make sense of it. Because I'm really, I'm really tired. And I'm really frustrated with how, with how the enemy has gotten the church so confused. How I was so confused for so long. And I'm really frustrated, and I'm really tired of everybody reading a book, listening to a sermon, listening to an MP3 or whatever it may be that we do, watching something on TV and being convicted of our sin and coming to church with real conviction, real desire to want to please God, to want to know God and coming and praying, God, this week I'll be better. This week I won't do it anymore. This week is the week that I do better and act right. And you walk out of here, some of you get to the parking lot, some of you get to Tuesday, some of you get to Wednesday, some of you get to Thursday. And the weight of your sin and your inability to keep the very laws you set up for yourself begin to weigh upon you and crush you. They begin to crush you. And so, thank God, you get to come back again on Sunday. And you come back in on Sunday. And somebody gets up here, and we preach, and we sing, and thank God I'm convicted. And it's real. It's real. I'm not making light. It's real. You want to know him. I get it. And you look at him, and you say, this time, this time I'm going to do it. This time, really, I'm going to do it. And you walk out of here frustrated with no joy but with the weight of the world strapped upon your back, trying to carry it day in and day out, trying to prove to God what you can do, prove to God how much you love him, prove to God how good you are. Tired. I'm tired of it for me. I'm tired of it for you. I'm frustrated by it. I'm frustrated by it because it doesn't have to be this way. It should not be this way. And we cannot be the people who God is calling us to be in this day as this church as long as we continue to live that way. We cannot continue to be like the people of Israel, ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to make a righteousness for ourselves to prove ourselves to God and day in and day out walk around in this world and in this city frustrated and exhausted with no joy in God and trying to tell people about him. I mean, there's the 1% of you that actually talk about him outside of this place to other people, but there's no joy in it. There's just all the things that you're doing to try to make yourself right before him that you try to get other people to do so that they'll be right before him because we're still trying to earn our way to acceptance before God and we're passing on frustration. We're passing on a passionless religion that people are getting smart enough to say no thank you for. And they're actually wising up and saying no thank you. I actually act better and define good in a way that's different than you that I'm better, to keep, I'm better able to keep than what you're telling me to do. No thank you frustrated by it. I'm tired of it for me, and I'm tired of it for you, and I'm tired of it for the church. Paul says there's another way. There is a righteousness that comes from God. This Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 10. You got it up there? Romans chapter 3, verse 10. None of us is righteous. No, no one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Verse 20. 
For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So there's a righteousness that comes from God. Paul says, but here's the thing. In ourselves, none of us are righteous. And none of us will be justified by what we do, by the works of the law, by our obedience. Here's something you need to know. Here's word number two, justified. What does justified actually mean? Because it's going to make all the difference in the world if we get this word right and how we understand the rest of this passage. Justified means to be right with someone without any blame or any liability. It sounds a lot like the other word we defined earlier. To have a right standing with someone without a liability or claim against you. In fact, as you begin to read this passage, when we begin to read Romans 3, some of your Bibles will actually say this. This word justified and where we see it in the verses that we're about to read in the next six verses is actually the same word as righteous. Romans 3.20 can actually be read, and some of your Bibles say, for by the works of the law, no human being will be made righteous in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what Paul just said is everything that we've already said. None of us are righteous before God because of our sin, and none of us can be made righteous to God by the things that we do. Our morality can't do it. Our religion can't do it. And we find ourselves frustrated and exhausted seeking a righteousness from God through what we do, and it can't ever happen. But, but, now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Paul just said, you can't make yourself righteous before God about what you do. Not morality and not religion. But there is a righteousness that comes from God. God has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. And he has done that by giving you his very righteousness through Jesus. He has made you righteous, declared you righteous, justified you in his presence through the work of his son on the cross for your sin. In just a minute, you'll see how this plays with everything else we did. Listen to this. God's act, I have no idea who said this, but I love it. God's act of justification, God's act of making us righteous is not inside of us, but it's outside of us. It's not in us, but it's for us. It's not a change of our nature or state, but a change of our standing before him. Paul said that God has acted upon us and has declared us in his sight, in his presence, acceptable, righteous, justified, without claim or liability against us. You are made righteous, justified by God through Christ in the eyes and presence of God. How? By his grace, Paul said, as a gift. By his grace, as a gift. You can't do anything to get it. You can't do anything to earn it. You can't buy it. You can't merit it. You can't chalk up enough points on the board. There's nothing that you can do. It is a gift, 
and by a gift's very nature. It is given to you, and it is received by you, and it's grace. You didn't deserve it, and you didn't earn it. It's not a gift that you earned that someone gave you that you received. It's from the grace of God with no merit to yourself given to you. He has made you righteous. He has declared you righteous. He has declared you acceptable by no merit of your own. It is something that you receive, a gift of his by his grace. How? Listen to what he says. This is where we've been. I'm going to tie it all together and see what difference it makes. I'm going to get really excited in a minute. I'm trying to contain myself here. How? Through the redemption that is in Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The last three weeks we've talked about redemption, propitiation, and expiation and what God did. And here's what Paul just said. You are not just forgiven and set free. Redemption. You're not just forgiven and set free from the bondage of sin and guilt and shame and death. You're not just redeemed and set free from those things, and the wrath of God is not just exhausted in, on Jesus in your place to take away those sins, and those sins aren't just removed from God's presence as far as the east is from the west. God does not just blot out that record, forgive you, exhaust his wrath on Jesus, and set you free from the guilt and bondage and, and enslavement that you find to sin and to death and to Satan, as fantastic as all that is. If he stopped there, you still wouldn't be right in his sight. All God did was deal with sin in that, but now he's going to give you a new standing. We've talked for weeks about what God did for you on the cross. Now this is the final piece. He has forgiven you. He has set you free. He has exhausted his wrath on Jesus that will never fall on you. And he has blotted your sins out as far as the east is from the west. And now here's what he's done. He said, now I'm going to make you right. Now you can come into my presence as accepted because of what I've done in my son for you by my grace as a gift to you. You now have right standing before God. Listen, if you can get this, this is Paul's desperate plea for the church at Rome and the people of Israel. If you can just get this, You'll stop chasing all of these different ways to make yourself right before God and find yourself exhausted with no joy, wondering why in the world you're doing what you're doing when nothing seems to ever change and you're stuck in these patterns of work and sin that you can't seem to get rid of and that you're fearful of being known for. And you'll stand and say, ah, I'm free. I'm forgiven. I'm right. I'm accepted before God. This, yeah. That's what I did. That, that, that's really what I did. I, I really did do that, but thank God Jesus did this. Thank God Jesus did this. And this is who I am. And this is who I am. I am righteous before God, accepted before God. No fault, liability, or claim can be held against me in the eyes of God because of the blood of Jesus. And how, how do you get it? If it comes to you as a gift, nothing that you can earn, you can't buy it, you can't do enough to deserve it. It's God's gift to you. It's his grace. How, how, how do you get it? I mean, you need it. Paul says everybody's looking for it. We're chasing it. It's not like we're just ignorant and don't, don't go after it. All of us in some way are chasing this right standing before God, and we can't seem to do it, but he's done it for us, so how do we get it? What does he say in verse 22? The righteousness of God, how? Through faith in Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. How do you get it? 
Faith. How do you get it? Faith. By definition, faith is the looking away from yourself and onto somebody else or onto something else. And Paul just said, how do you stand righteous before God by no merit of your own? You simply believe that what he has done in your place through his son for his glory and your transformation and joy. You simply believe it. You simply believe it. And here's the thing I hate the most about that. All of us, including myself, probably me is the, is the foremost one in this room because I stand up here and do this. All of us want to actually earn that. Here's the problem we have with it. We all want to actually earn that. God says you can't earn it. You can't, I'm not going to let you earn it. There is nothing that any one person in here can do to make themselves any iota more important or more deserving of my transformation than anyone else. You can't earn it, but all of us are desperate to earn it. I so want to earn it. I so want to do something that makes me right, something that I can say, I contributed to what you did in my place. I want to earn that righteousness. And he said, you can't. You have to believe that I've done it for you. And here's where we get all jacked up. We tend to make that belief an act of work so that we can say we believed. I mean, listen, we don't have time for me to go off on the faith stuff, but we have this nasty tendency because of our desire to earn our righteousness before God, the very thing Paul is talking about that all of us are chasing after that's leaving us absolutely dry and without joy. We have a desire to take the very thing that God did for us and look at it and go, how great! You've made me righteous. Now, I believed. Credit that to me is good. I believed. I made a good decision. And we'd like to think that our faith is actually our own work so that we earn some measure of what God did for us. But here's the problem. What happens when your faith gets shaky? I mean, what happens when your emotions get a little sketchy? What happens when bad things begin to befall in your life by no consequence of anything that you did? It just begins to happen of life in a sinful and fallen world and your faith gets a little bit shaky. If your faith was your work that earned you some merit of God's favor and now your faith gets shaky, how are you going to feel? How are you going to feel? Are you going to stand with joy and passion in the midst of anything that life brings in your way and in your path and say, by God's grace, that is what I did and who I am, but thank God, because of Jesus, I'm, I am right and find joy? Or are you going to doubt the decision that you made? Are your emotions going to dictate the reality of God's forgiveness of you? And is your faith and the strength of your faith and the lack of your doubt going to determine for you just how acceptable and justified and right before God you actually are. It will if you make faith work. But Paul said that's not what this is. His faith is simply the instrument by which we receive the work that God has done on our behalf in Jesus. Jesus did all of the lifting. Jesus did all of the work. We simply stick our very empty and broken hands out and receive what he has done by believing in what he has done and believing what he has said about himself and how, what he has accomplished in our place for our change and for his glory we just we just believe you just believe faith is the instrument through which we subjectively experience the objective work of god on the cross and so what paul has said in romans 3 and what we've seen in the last three weeks god came in christ and redeemed us from the curse of the law redeemed us from the bondage of sin, redeemed us from the guilt and the shame that comes because of the sin that we're enslaved to, because we're born into it, because of what Adam did in the beginning. We're born into this and enslaved to the sin, and God came in Jesus and set us free. 
that we might worship him and know him and be satisfied in him and we're no longer enslaved to the guilt of sin and death and, and Satan. And he did that by offering himself as a sacrifice in our place, satisfying the justice and the righteousness of God that was due to our sin. So he laid himself on that cross willingly and took upon himself all the justice and judgment of God for our sin in his body on the cross that we could be made right and forgiven before God and he blotted that sin away and took it away from the presence of God and exhausted the wrath of God in its place that we could be made right before God and God can say because of Jesus I am now accepting you because you believe in what I have done through him not by anything that you can do so that you might find real joy in being satisfied in who I am for you and no longer chasing your tail trying to earn something that you can never get. You can have joy. You can actually sing when we play music. Really. You can actually have joy. Do you know that? It, Christianity it, it does not have to be, because it was never intended to be, this system of redemption through which you have a checklist by which you measure how well you're doing and how well other people are doing. And you measure yourself against other people and by these particular rules. You never have to find your joy in how well you're keeping those rules. You never have to wrestle with the dissatisfaction by how well you don't keep those rules. Because all of it's been done and achieved for you in Jesus that you could have joy. That you could have joy. And I'm so disheartened at the lack of joy in the church in this country. I'm so disheartened at the lack of joy in my life when I try to recognize that my righteousness doesn't come from standing up here and doing this. My righteousness doesn't come from whether this goes well or this goes poorly. My righteousness doesn't come from whether you stay or whether you go. My righteousness doesn't come from what I read and what I don't read. My righteousness doesn't come from all that. It comes from what God has done for me in Jesus, and I'm so frustrated at how often I forget that. I'm so frustrated at how often I'm ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God in Jesus, and I find myself chasing a righteousness of my own. But Paul said in verse 4 of chapter 10 that Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Jesus, not morality, not religion. You don't have to have either. You need Jesus. I mean, that's the end. That's the sum. That's the message. Not morality, not religion, Jesus. I have neither of the other two to offer you. I don't have a good set of rules for you to follow. I probably don't follow half the ones you want me to. I, I don't create a very good religious environment because I'm not very versed in all that stuff. I don't have morality or religion to give you. Simply Jesus. He is the end of the law for righteousness. That's it. You have him. And Paul said it's for anybody. I love that, verse 22. It's for all who believe for there is no distinction. There is not one thing that any one person in this room has done that does not merit them the righteousness of God in Jesus, if you believe. No distinction. No distinction. Sitting there and telling me that you've done something that God can't forgive, sitting there and telling me that God would never accept you on Jesus' behalf for what he has done because of what you have done, it means you don't get it yet. You haven't gotten it yet because that's not the point. The point is not being accepted based on what you have done or what you haven't done. The point is not that anything that you have done in the past or, or know that you are tempted to do in the present or are fearful that you will do in the future can keep you from being accepted and made righteous before God if you believe in what God has done for you in Jesus. It's for everyone. No distinction. No distinction. And here's the beauty of it. And, and, we'll, and we'll wrap it up with this. Here's the beauty of it. As I was thinking about the righteousness of God. I wish we could talk about 
the righteousness of God, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, being the breastplate that we put on when we face the battles that we face and we stand in the life that we live against the enemy and the attacks that we face and the suffering we face. I wish we could talk about the breastplate of righteousness, recognizing that our heart is protected, our heart is governed, our soul is carried by this understanding. The righteousness that we're to put on, to be protected by, it's the righteousness that God has given us in Christ Jesus. I wish we could talk about that, but here's what I love. We have said in Proverbs. You know this? You may even have it on a, like a bookmark or something. The righteous are what? As bold as a lion. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Why are we so timid? Why are we so fearful? If we can understand what God has said through Paul, if we can understand what God has done for us in Jesus, if we can understand and begin to take hold in our life on a daily basis the definitive act of God declaring us right in his presence, no longer needing to justify ourselves by anything that we can do, by any work of the law, but that he sees us right in Jesus, why are we walking around so afraid? Why are we walking around so exhausted? Why are we walking around with such little joy? We must not remember that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Who can come against you? Who who can come against you? Who can come against those who are made right by what God has done for us in Jesus? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can do it? Nobody. Nothing. The righteous are as bold as as a lion, confident because of what God has done for us in Jesus, yet humble because we recognize that he did it and there was nothing that we could do to earn it. And we can walk with a boldness and a confidence and a humility that comes because we recognize that our standing before God has been worked out by Jesus and we simply believe on the righteousness of God. For our joy, for our acceptance, we can become confident and humble righteous and bold. That's what I want. That's what I I want for this church. That's what I want for my life. That's what I want for the church in this country is I want a people who are so certain of the righteousness that comes from God and so tired of chasing a righteousness that comes from their own work that they are being transformed and their soul is being cultivated on a daily basis as every single day they're reminding themselves of the very tangible reality that God has done for them what they could not do for themselves. And we stand before God righteous and forgiven and accepted because of Jesus. And therefore we don't have to define ourselves by what we've done in the past, but we define ourselves the way that God defines us, which is the way God sees us in Jesus. And we can walk out the life that we live and the relationships that we're in and the places that God sends us confident because of who we are and humble because we recognize what it took to get us there and we can love people through the grace of God that's been shown to us in making us righteous and setting us free and forgiving us of our sin and being transformed into his likeness. That's, that, that's what I want. I don't know. It's a, it's a tall task, but, but he's done it. There's, I don't have to do it. You, you don't have to do it. I don't have to create some kind of Nifty PowerPoint, which will never happen because I'm horrible at these things. I don't have to write some kind of little book that you can follow and, and get into your pattern and then we'll be the church, then we'll be the people that God wants us to be. We have to be a people who 
who are confident and who remind ourselves on a daily basis of who we are because of what he has done. And may the joy that comes from the gospel, may the joy that comes from the power of the gospel that we sang about earlier, may it be characteristic in our hearts and in our souls because we're not exhausted anymore. Because we're not chasing it anymore. The ladders that we climb to try to achieve some kind of standing before God, we can lay them down, you can, can knock them down. You don't have to climb them anymore. It's been done. Jesus did all that we were designed by God to do in our place. That we might be made right before God, yet still a sinner. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. This is my hope and this is my prayer for, for me. It's my prayer for us that this would be something that we would be defined by and we would be marked by and we would be transformed by. And the only way we can do that is if we believe. It's if we believe. Let me pray. Father, your word says that even our capacity to believe what you have done for us in Christ is a gift from you. So I ask, Lord, that you just come and you shower the gift of faith, the capacity to believe, to see your glory in the face of Christ as beautiful, and to see the end of our, of our attempts at making ourselves right before you, shattered by what he has done, to see that Jesus is the end of righteousness by the law, and that we are made right in your presence. Oh, to know you this deeply. We're desperate for it. We've chased our tail with it. God, all we have to do is believe that you have made us right. And we can experience the joy and the passion and the freedom and the forgiveness that you died to bring us. We can no longer, we can stop making, making a mockery of your life and your death and your resurrection at our attempts at self-righteousness. But we can, but we can be confident in who you are and what you've done humbled because there was nothing that we can do to earn it and bold emboldened to live because this is how you see us and nothing can come against that nothing can come against that and we can live with confidence and joy and humility and honesty because you have accepted us because of Jesus and so I ask that you pour out by your spirit faith to believe that. A faith to believe that every day. Every day. That we could be changed into your image for your glory and our joy. Amen.